Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace. And after a two-episode absence, I'm happy to welcome back my fellow commenter in today's episode, Cameron Brooks. Together, Cameron and I will talk about Joseph, the husband of Mary, who doesn't get much airtime after the birth narratives of Jesus, but might just offer an interesting model of biblical manhood. And we'll also circle back to the end of Zechariah to revisit the meaning of the mark of the beast we hear so much about. Well, Pastor Mark, I'm excited for our new sermon series in Matthew. And this last week, we are already into the birth of Christ. So we're in this narrative where Mary and Joseph are just hearing the news for the first time. And you had an interesting section in your sermon about Joseph in particular. I actually had a conversation with my father a few months back, and he was very fascinated by the fact that Joseph kind of disappears after the the birth of Jesus. It's interesting you mentioned that too. And he's a mysterious figure in a way, so we don't think about him a lot. But you paused in the sermon and you talked about, in particular, Joseph's manhood or his example of virtue. And I thought... Maybe we could talk about that a little bit more here. So as you were preparing the sermon, what made you stop to talk about that? Well, so a few years ago, uh, a guy that I know in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a poet named Jeff Rath, who, great guy, he works at a bookstore there. And I always go in when I'm in town and, and try to hang out with him. But he wrote a poem from the perspective of Joseph and I thought it was fascinating because I can't say that I'd ever spent a lot of time uh, creatively trying to get into the mind of Joseph and what it would have been like. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. You know, when we think about the birth of Jesus from like a narrative perspective, the, the gospel of Luke, I think, shapes so much of it that we tend to get into things through Mary's perspective. And so Matthew gives us the, we might say, Joseph's side of the story. Mm-hmm. And finding ourselves here reminded me of that poem entering into the, the mindset of Joseph, what it must have been like for him. And he is a figure, you know, that people speculate about because he does drop out of the narrative after the infancy of Jesus. And so the speculation, I suppose, is that he has died and maybe, you know, was was older than Mary or or what have you. We just don't know. Mm -hmm. And so he becomes in some ways a, a little bit of a mystery. And whenever you're dealing with characters like that, you're always tempted to kind of, uh, you know, speculate about mm-hmm. them. And, and so here we actually have concrete information about Joseph, about who he was and his character based on his actions. And as I was reading it in Matthew one, it just struck me that here's a guy that we don't think about a lot, but in a world where, as we've discussed, we're oftentimes struggling to find models of, let's see, like, uh, biblical masculinity mm-hmm. Joseph, even though his appearance here is relatively brief, I think gives us a really good model to aspire to. Hmm. Yeah, I, I jot, jotted down a few notes about him. And actually the text 
describes him in some interesting ways. And I, I was circling the word. So first off, it says he was just. So in his justice is to displayed in the fact that he doesn't want to put Mary to shame in this, in this incident. Well, and I think the, the implication of saying that he's a just or righteous man um, is, is maybe not the reason why he doesn't want to put her to shame. It's the reason why he wouldn't, um, he wouldn't be indifferent to her offense, right? Because he's, he's righteous. Like mm-hmm. he, he cares about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, to suddenly discover what appears to be the uh, unfaithfulness of his his betrothed Mary, uh, that's that's an offense that would matter to him. So the fact that he wants to deal mercifully with her, I think, is not um, it's not because of his righteousness. It is. It's also not in spite of it. Right. But there's a complex relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Because you expect him to be the stickler for, for the rules, Mm -hmm. but instead it's, it's coupled with this compassion. Sure. Yeah. So he's, he's just and merciful at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. And that, yeah, it's very complicated, but there are, there are more words too. He resolves to divorce her quietly. And you talked about his, his resolute character here. He, he acts, but at, at the same time, it says, as he's considering these things. So there's this yeah. interesting period that you, you pointed to where he, he makes up his mind and yet he hasn't quite gone through with it yet. Right. Right. And, and that was one of the things as I was reading uh, other commentaries on Matthew that really st- struck me, you know, I, 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 it, I think it's easy to read that and not give much weight to those two moments. Mm-hmm. You know, he resolves to do something, and then the angel comes to him in a dream while he's considering. And so you can think of, you know, being resolved and considering as kind of the same thing. But usually consideration precedes resolution. Right. But here, the resolution comes, and then there's still some considering. And when I thought about that, what that struck me as was sensitivity like a spiritual sensitivity that he, he knows what the right thing to do is and he's determined to do the right thing, but to do it with mercy, with compassion, even though he's made that resolution, there's still something preventing him from putting it into action. And and that's what I'm getting at with, with spiritual sensitivity. Like I think this is speculation, but I think there's something in him that won't let him pull the trigger, even though the, the reasoning behind his actions is totally sound. Hmm. There's just something that is, is holding him back. And I think it's, it's just a, a sensitivity to the reality that hasn't yet been revealed to him. Hmm. So do you think it's fair to say then that if we take a lesson from Joseph, there can be times in our lives where we too can know the right thing to do, but maybe that's not the full picture or, or that, there needs to be some more consideration in how we go about doing it. Is that kind of the lesson? I think, yeah, that that we want to be righteous. Mm-hmm. So there is no sense in which, you know, Joseph turns his back on what is just, right? He's a just man. Mm-hmm. So let's start with practicing righteousness, but then recognize that there's nothing inconsistent, like in the practice of righteousness, with mercy, Right. He could 
expose her to shame and ridicule. He would be within his rights, but he's determined not to do that. And so we always want to balance our sense of justice with a desire to show mercy and to be forbearing, right? And I think that that in that like fundamental orientation, you have, I think, a, a model of, let's say, manliness that it would be wonderful to aspire to. You know, there's nothing uh, hot-headed or macho about Joseph. He's not manly because he's out picking fights mm-hmm. or going to the fights. He is manly because of his combination of integrity on the one hand and compassion on the other. And then if you add to that a spiritual orientation and sensitivity, I think you have a portrait of a man who, even though we, we, we don't get to spend much time with him, he definitely comes across as, as more complex and considered than a lot of our sort of archetypal male role models are. Well, may we learn from Joseph. Yeah, and, and then you add all that together and recognize that he is, in fact, a man of action, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? That, that all of this taken together, once he has the dream, once the angel gives him his marching orders, he acts on them immediately. And later on, as we see, the angel will say, hey, you need to go to Egypt, and he'll do that. So there's no sense of him not acting, but he's not simply a, a, a man of action, Right. He's a man of action with a lot of contemplation and a lot of sensitivity in his character as well. The end of the passage that you preached on Sunday says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, your sermon on Sunday was all about the significance of the name Jesus, Yahweh saves, and how the name Jesus says something about the human condition. So yes, Joseph is an example of manhood, and yet he too is part of the people that Jesus came to save. It's interesting to think about the gospel as a picture of justice and mercy together too. You know, yeah. we talk about the cross as as God's greatest act of justice and mercy at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I was just kind of reflecting on that after the sermon, how, how cool it is to see this little snapshot picture of Joseph, justice and mercy at the beginning of Jesus' life. And then you don't really hear from him at right, all. Right, right. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's clear when we reflect on Mary that, that Mary is not randomly chosen, that she is uniquely equipped to do what God has chosen her to do. And this suggests to me that maybe that's also true for Joseph as well. Pastor Mark, I want to talk about the mark of the beast a little bit. Okay, okay. This, is a big, right. this is a big topic. The mark of the beast means a lot of things to many Christians. It and does. your Zechariah sermon kind of wrapped up, wrapped up with some symbolic language about marks on people's foreheads and bells. And we talked a little bit about how this connects to Revelation and how there's this infamous mark of the beast that Christians have interpreted in, in lots of different ways. And oftentimes we find ourselves looking for this mark of the beast as a sign of the end times. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that, okay, if that's fine. Absolutely. First off, maybe you could say something about what was going on in Zechariah 
And ultimately, I want to know what is the mark of the beast? How should we think about this in, sure. in the end times? Maybe we should start with the mark of the beast and then go back to sure. Zechariah. Because I think the mark of the beast is one of those things that like you don't need to have grown up in church to have heard that term before, oh. right? People are familiar with the mark of the beast, 666, all that kind of thing. Uh, from the book of Revelation, Revelation 13 talks about the mark of the beast. And it says this is a mark that people will have on their foreheads or on their, their hands. And without the mark of the beast, you won't be allowed to buy or sell. And so that's led to a lot of uh, fear and, you know, we could say conspiracy mongering, trying to identify what the mark of the beast is. And as you talk to people, depending on their age, they'll have some kind of different memories of, of people's guesses of what that was. Right. So I mentioned in the sermon, you know, you, you'll see people today saying, uh, you know, government vaccination shots are the mark of the beast mm -hmm. or, uh, before that, the idea of, of government like tracking chips being implanted in people is the mark of the beast. And, and I realize as I'm saying this at Grace, it's not as if there's a bunch of people at our church who think these things, but you do know people who have heard things like this. Mm -hmm. And so they tend to think, oh, this is the kind of stuff Christians believe in, right? right? Uh, in an earlier time, you know, it, it would have been something else. Someone was telling me Sunday that she remembered uh, when she was growing up, people saying social security numbers were the oh. mark of the beast because without a social security number, you cannot buy or sell, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. It's like, I, 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 although technically I think you can, I just don't think yeah. the taxes are going to be <laughs> uh, worked out correctly. But. I heard uh, Apple watches too. Yes. You know, Apple watch is good. Yeah. Is that an <laughs> Apple watch? Right okay, now. good. You've got your mark of the beast. So I can buy and sell. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. I'll just let our listeners know I don't have an Apple watch, so you can trust what I'm saying, even if Cameron has, has his, but, but yeah, so it's one of those things, like a lot of stuff that you get in end times prophecy that lends itself well to, let's say like a science fiction movie, like the left behind kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But, but it does also lead people to wonder, um, are, are, are Christians crazy? You know, what's going on with this stuff? Is It just seems strange. So um, the perennial fascination with the Mark of the Beast and what it is, obviously, is, is kind of in your mind. And, and if I were to ask you, or honestly, like any average, you know, random Christian on the street, you know, hey, would you as a Christian like to receive the mark on your forehead that the Bible talks about? They would say, no, absolutely not. Of course not. The weird thing is, though, usually when the Bible is talking about a mark on the forehead, it's not the mark of the beast. But the mark on the forehead is the one that God places on those who worship him. Mm -hmm. And so that's where Zechariah comes in. Because in Zechariah 14, that final passage we looked at, it talks about even the horses in the kingdom that is to come, having bells on them that are inscribed, holy to the Lord or holy to Yahweh. And that inscription is familiar to us because that's the inscription that is alluded to earlier in one of the night visions when the high priest Joshua is cleansed of his sin. He's given a new headdress. The angel of the Lord, who is Christ, uh, inscribes himself on the stone that will be in this headdress. 
and removes the sins of the people in a single day. And you wonder, well, what does he inscribe? Mm -hmm. Well, if you go back to the description of the clothing of the high priest Aaron, you know that on the plate inscribed on his forehead are the words, holy to Yahweh, the same words quoted in Zechariah 14. So this idea of those who are dedicated to God, having inscribed on their foreheads his name, is one that comes up over and over again in Scripture. And that's what we should be thinking Mm -hmm. when we think about marks on foreheads and that kind of thing. That's helpful. I I wonder if Harry Potter gets in the way of this too, you know? I mean, (laughs) possibly. And maybe, I don't know, maybe she's taking some of that from some of the weird Christian stuff too. But yeah, the, the mark of the forehead is kind of this mysterious and bad thing where it's interesting that God is the one that's you know, bestowing this upon his people. That's right. And there's, setting there's, them a, apart. there's a history to it. You know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you go back in the Old Testament, uh, you go back all the way to Passover, right? And you think about what was it that caused the angel of death to pass over a household? Well, it was the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. But if you imagine wiping the blood on the doorpost and the lentil of the door, it's a lot like applying something to the forehead of the door, let's mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. right? And so you get an image there of that covering or anointing of the door. And it's very similar to what you see happening to people. Uh, Aaron, of course, has on his forehead this inscription, holy to Yahweh. But in Ezekiel 9, the people being sent into exile, those who will remain faithful to God, are marked on their foreheads in the same way. They receive this mark or seal on their foreheads, and they will persevere as a result of that. Um, if you go to the book of Revelation, not 13, but chapter 7, the same kind of language is used to talk about the people who have uh, this seal on their foreheads so that they will be preserved from the judgments that are coming. And even at the end of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 22, 4, when you have this moment that I think of as like the, the, the ultimate, like the final moments of redemption, like, like where the plan of redemption reaches its apex, which is when we see him face to face, like the way that Paul dreamed of that, that face to face communion. In Revelation 22, 4, John writes, they shall see his face and his name shall be written on their foreheads. So the idea is actually really simple, that all those who worship the Lamb have his name inscribed on their foreheads. And that is referred to again and again and again in Scripture. So the mark of the beast is more like a, let's say, a footnote to that usage. And it's just a way of describing those who worship the beast in the same way that those who worship the true God have his name inscribed spiritually on their foreheads. Mm -hmm. Those who worship the beast are marked with his name. Mm -hmm. And in a world that is ruled by the beast, those who do not worship him cannot participate in the life of the community. They're excluded and ostracized the same way that those who wouldn't worship Nebuchadnezzar were persecuted and driven out. Uh, because they were not his worshipers. They were not, as it were, sealed by his name. So the funny thing is, in this sermon, as we kind of work through this survey of what the Bible says about seals and marks on the forehead, I was never 
offering an alternate interpretation of the mark of the beast. Like what I was trying to do was show a larger context of how the Bible talks about this sealing or marking in the forehead. And once you have that, the way that you read Revelation 13, inevitably it's going to change, mm-hmm. right? You're not going to be thinking in sort of literalistic terms about microchips and vaccines and social security numbers and stuff. You're going to be thinking in terms of worship and identity. Right. And so it's not really, you know, an argument like, like don't see the mark of the beast this way, see it that way. It, it's really, once you see this bigger picture, then other things start coming into focus. And there are other areas when it comes to interpreting uh, prophecy where we make mistakes like this, where we look for physical fulfillment instead of spiritual. I think the biggest, uh, even more important than the the mark of the beast would be the temple. Mm -hmm. Even though Jesus makes it really clear that it is the spiritual temple that he's concerned with, there are still people today who believe Jesus cannot return again until the physical temple is rebuilt in the physical city of Jerusalem. And if you take the witness of scripture the way that we've been doing the last few months, it's kind of hard Mm -hmm. to hold on to an idea like that. Yeah, I get that. And to be fair, you know, like for Aaron, the mark on the forehead was a literal mark. Yes. And there was a literal temple in the Old Testament. Yes. So there's this transition into the New Testament and beyond where it seems like the Bible's moving us beyond only physical fulfillments or maybe beyond any physical fulfillment. So how do we, as readers of scripture, how do we know when that's happening? You know, do we just need to pay better attention or... Right. It's not as simple as saying that that we've moved from the physical right. to the spiritual, because, of course, we are still physical. Yes. You know, we are embodied souls. And the physical signs haven't gone away, although they have changed. Right. So now we can look at baptism and we can see that as the water of baptism is is spread across the forehead of the one being baptized. And as we seal that person in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we have a physical sign that puts us in mind of these spiritual realities, mm-hmm. right? So I think that we still have the the physical and the spiritual mixed together, or the physical pointing to the spiritual. What we've got to do, though, is take a look at we might say like the cues that we've been given. And when we see Jesus, for example, saying, no, no, it's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. We say Jesus saying things that, that seem to devalue the emphasis on the physical temple and instead elevate the, the spiritual temple. Then we can start looking for the areas where, where we need to do the same thing. Now, don't get me wrong. When it comes to like the mark of the beast or something, I, I don't think the, the stakes are nearly as high in misinterpreting that as they are in misunderstanding the, the spiritual kingdom, let's say, as a whole. But I think it all kind of goes together. You know, if, if, we're, if we are failing to read something like the mark of the beast in that larger context, we're probably also not thinking about the kingdom in that larger context either. One principle of interpretation that my dad taught me actually growing up was that you should interpret scripture in light of scripture. You know, this is a very basic idea, but 
crucial, I think, that you take what you do know, you take something clear in one area and apply it to others. And and I think it gets to a, a better, wholer picture of of what the scriptures are saying all around. Absolutely. I mean, that is the rule of faith and it is codified in Westminster Confession chapter one that we interpret scripture with scripture. We interpret the the complicated, darker passages in, in light of the clearer, lighter ones and allow the Bible to interpret itself. And so that's why I think anytime you're gathering all this data, right, and you're seeing all of these indications of, of marks on the forehead, and then suddenly in Revelation 13, you come across another one, you definitely want to understand that new one in light of all the other ones. And not the other way around. Exactly. <laughs> That's all the time we have for now. We hope this episode has given you plenty to think about. I'd like to offer my thanks to Cameron for asking such great questions, and thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.